Good morning. Hey. Today, uh, we're going to talk about, it's a, a topical sermon today. Brent asked me if I would do a sermon on Thanksgiving, on, on gratitude. And uh, my thoughts when he first asked me is I did a sermon about four years ago on, on um, faith and gratitude. And I was just going to bring that sermon out and uh, re-preach it for the most part, just kind of change it a little bit. Um, but I started going over that sermon and then over that sermon and over that sermon and thinking and just kind of meditating on the, the concept of gratitude and thanksgiving. And I'm just, just to be honest, I learned a lot about me, I feel like, this week studying that topic. And I really believe that I struggle with being thankful. Uh, the whole week I've just been kind of wrestling with this idea. And... Um, uh, it's been a it's been a wrestle, like just thinking about where my heart is when it comes to gratitude and thanksgiving. And so uh, today's sermon is probably going to be a little different. Um, I have parts of my old sermon, so if you were here for for that uh, about four years ago, you're, some of this might sound familiar. Um, but I re- I really don't have points this morning, so there's not three points of how to be thankful. Um, I even don't have a main passage I'm going over. I really, as I was kind of meditating and thinking this week, uh, I wanted to just talk about um, the things that I, I kind of went through in my meditations and thoughts uh, of gratitude that I have found and read in Scripture. And so my goal is not this morning that we understand gratitude better or that we understand what Scripture says about gratitude per se, but more as a church family, and I just love this morning different parts of the church family that have come up and, and the worship songs and just praising the Lord with you. I was just thinking back there how thankful I am for this church. Uh, more of this this church family this morning, if you're visiting, you just be a part of it. Um, just to think and meditate together on, on gratitude. And I hope that we can just have an act of worship in our thinking this morning. Um, so I want to start by asking the question, because I think we probably should start there, what is Thanksgiving? I, I just Google searched that, and um, uh, which I do often to try and get my thought process going, either what secular world thinks or a pastor that I admire, John Piper, pops up on a sermon that he had on Thanksgiving. And so I, I've taken a lot of this beginning part from that sermon. Um, what is gratitude, right? I mean, it's one of those things where you know it when you see it, when you see someone that is thankful and truly, truly thankful, and you also know it when you don't see it. Someone that says thank you, but doesn't really mean it, especially with kids, right? Kids that aren't thankful, but they know they should say thank you. And that's because, as I've studied and thought about it, I realize that gratitude is more than just an act of will. It's not something that we just will to do. Think about it. If a 10-year-old, talking about kids, I'm picking on kids this morning. If a 10-year-old gets a pair of socks for Christmas and says thank you, depending on who the 10-year-old is, most 10-year-olds are probably just being polite, but typically you know he's not genuinely thankful. And that's good. I mean, we're we're called to be polite. That's what we want. Um, uh, I'm not picking on kids that do that. But that leads to a question. What changes those words, thank you, to genuine thankfulness? And this is what Piper says, and I think this is, this is good. Gratitude is more than an action. 
which we decide to do by an act of willpower. You can say the words, thank you, when there is no genuine gratitude in your heart at all. Customs may dictate that you say the words, even if you don't really appreciate what has been done for you. What it takes to turn the words, thank you, into true gratitude is the real, genuine feeling of gratitude. In other words, gratitude is a feeling, it's an emotion that promotes action. And, and it's a joy-filled feeling. I mean, think about this. Uh, there's this deep connection between joy and gratitude. If you find someone that is just a thankful person, you most likely have found someone that is extremely joy-filled, right, most of the time. Right? There's a deep connection there. But it's more than just a feeling, right, or at least more than the feeling of joy because you can delight in a gift and not be thankful. Right? So let's, let's go back to this 10-year-old. Say that same 10-year-old right, opens up his next gift for Christmas, and the gift is a video game that he's been asking for for like three years. Although that wouldn't make sense because then it would be outdated, but follow along. <laughs> he rips open the package, sees the game, is super happy, even joy-filled, but then turns to his parents and says, it's about time. Then runs into his bedroom, closes the door, plays the game in hopes of not being interrupted. We would say that's the opposite of gratitude. And that kid is ungrateful. Right? In reality, both examples are kids. It's the same kid, but two examples of ungratefulness. Right? The first example of a 10-year-old opening the socks is polite by saying thank you. But he's not truly thankful. Right? He's not truly thankful. Why? Because he doesn't value the gift. Right? Think about that. It might be different in, a, in a, a country where socks are extremely valuable. But in America, how blessed we are, socks are socks. Right? The second example of a 10-year-old getting a video game values the gift, delights in the gift even, but he doesn't appreciate the giver. His joy is not directed towards a person. Therefore, we say he's ungrateful. Therefore, gratitude must be more than just delighting in a gift. It is a feeling of happiness directed toward a person for giving you something good. But there's another qualification that we need to make. Because think about this. We typically don't send our employers thank you cards for every paycheck you get. It doesn't mean that we're not thankful. We may be very thankful for our job or the ability to work or the free country that we work in. It just means there's levels of gratitude. There's levels of gratitude. Gratitude generally rises in direct proportion of how undeserving the gift is. So a paycheck right, that you work for is a trading of favors. You make a contract with someone and say, hey, I'll do this. You pay me this. You may be thankful, but it's not the same if that gift was completely undeserved, right? You think you're, you're trading favors. So as I was meditating on these things and just kind of thinking about these things, I realized that gratitude really rises in direct proportion to three things. 
This is my thoughts on it. The first is the value of the gift given. The second is the cost of the gift given. And the third is how undeserved the gift is. Therefore, I would define gratitude as, and this is, again, my definition, a feeling of joy and happiness directed toward a person for giving you some kind of gift. And it rises in direct proportion to the realization. I want you to take note of that word. It rises to the direct proportion to the realization of the value of the gift given, the cost of the gift given, and how undeserved the gift is. In other words, gratitude should flourish in the sphere of God's grace. It should cause joy and happiness every time we contemplate God's grace because God's grace is valuable. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. I don't even know what that means. I mean, think about that. With every, spirit, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's valuable. It's costly. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's also undeserving. Right? Ephesians 2.8 For by grace, which if you don't know this, that word grace literally means undeserved gift. <laughs> For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift, an undeserved gift of God. Not a result of works that no one shall boast, that no one may boast. Therefore, Christians should be the most grateful, most joy-filled people on this earth. But we're not, right? I mean, we're not. I'm not. Like I said, I've struggled this week thinking about my, my own personal life and where I am with gratitude. And it bothered me this week as I, as I went through this. Why? Why aren't we? I mean, there's some. Why aren't we? I think the problem is we have the wrong perspective. We have the wrong perspective. Listen, my definition of gratitude says this, that it rises in direct proportion to the realization or the understanding of the value of the gift giving, the cost of the gift given, and how undeserving the gift is. And I believe we as Christians, and I'm, I'm talking to myself in this sermon, I hope you guys realize, the reason I wrestled with is, I'm preaching to myself here, is we fail to understand the value, the cost, and I think especially how undeserving God's grace truly is. Real quick, turn to Luke 18, verse 9 with me. We're going to be jumping around Scripture today. and um, So if you want to just listen, that's fine too. But there's a couple of ver- or passages I, I'd like you to turn to, so I'll, I'll direct you that direction as we get to them. Brent mentioned this uh, parable last week, I think it was. Uh, and it's one of those parables that gets mentioned a lot because it really ex- explains kind of a lot, especially self-righteousness. And, 
And so uh, Luke chapter 18, 9, let's just look at it. Um, He also told this parable. This is Jesus talking, obviously. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I mean, that's the definition of um, self-righteousness right there. A person that trusted in themselves, their good works for righteousness. And the signs of a self-righteous person, just so you can examine your own life and your own heart, the signs of a self-righteous person is that he treated others with contempt. If you treat others with contempt, then you should maybe question yourself on this. But let's keep going. Jesus tells this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like this other man. Extortioners, uh, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. There's the attitude of a self-righteous man, and, and we can just sniff that out and say, that's ugly. Right? He thinks he's better than others. He thanks God, but in his heart, it's pretty obvious that he's thinking God should thank him. I mean, you could change the words just a little bit. Listen, God, you should thank me that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. Right? I fast. I tithe. I keep the law. I'm obedient. You should be thanking me. He knows he shouldn't say that. And I believe just like the kid that got socks, this is kind of a polite gesture to God. It's obviously not true gratitude. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the attitude of the tax collector. God, I have nothing I, I can offer you. I have nothing to give you. Verse 14. I tell you, This man, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The humble heart says, God, you owe me nothing. All the glory, all the praise, all the gratitude goes to you. The proud, self-righteous heart says, God, you owe me because I'm a good person. And this is the wrong perspective I think we as Christians need to fight against. We think God owes us something. Or at least, and that might be too too obvious to say, God, you owe me something. I think a lot of us may struggle with this, that we think we're trading favors with God. Like a paycheck, the employer We obey, he gives. He gives, we obey. Back and forth. It's gratitude to God, but it's more a polite gesture than a deep-rooted feeling of thanksgiving and joy. It's what Piper says. True grace from God is not a trading of favors. Grace begins when one person is full and another is empty. When one person is a have and the other is a have not. When one is rich and the other is poor, then grace comes into action as the emptiness of one is filled up by the fullness of the other. 
when our poverty is replaced by his wealth. And this all happens not because we deserve it, but because God is gracious. Therefore, God is the great giver, deserving honor, praise, and thanksgiving. And we are the great receivers. Is there ever a time where this is in reverse? Is there ever a time where we are full and God is empty? Is there ever a time where we are rich and God is poor? I had to think about this. Where does this wrong perspective come from? And again, examining my own heart, I think it comes from this idea that we are to give to God. That we need to give our things, we need to give our time, we need to give our money, we need to give our talent, we need to give our Sunday mornings, we need to give our lives to God. And yes, I'm, I'm not denying that we're called to give these things. But here's the realization, okay? Here's the understanding. Can you give God something that would make him well, wealthier or better off because you gave it to him? No. Or this. Can you give God something that he doesn't already own? Is there ever a time that God is in need and we are the solution to that need? I think many Christians would say yes, or at least they live out that way or act that way. And I know in my own heart I think that way. That's why I say this. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 17.24. Just listen to this. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. And that's a big God. God that spoke everything into existence and is the Lord of everything. This God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives. That's the key word. Gives. To all mankind, life, breath, and everything. Listen, God is the great giver. And since he himself gives to all mankind, that makes us the great receivers. This is talking about in this parable, Paul's ta- or not this parable, this passage. Paul's talking to uh, Greeks that know nothing about the biblical God. And he's talking on a common grace level, which is a theological term. Common grace just means the grace that is for every man. Every man on earth. Right? Every man has breath that's alive, and that's God's grace. Every man that is alive has life, and that's God's grace. I mean, med- just think about that. Meditate on that for a second. God gave you life. Right? God gave you you. <laughs> I, no one, I say this to the high schoolers all the time. You've heard me say this, that, but I'm going to say it again. No one ever says... No, I think I'm going to be born. Let me make myself. I'd like to be born in 1983. Your life isn't yours, it's God's. It was given to you. We don't even make our own heartbeats. Every beat is a gift, every beat is God pouring out His grace. 
I, I looked this up, Wikipedia, so this might be right or wrong. I don't know. I, I don't see Dr. Dave in here, so maybe next service he'll correct me. But I, Wikipedia says we have 37 trillion cells in our body doing all types of crazy things that are keeping you alive. And you're doing nothing besides sitting. Think about this. We right now are floating in space on a rock called Earth. With massive rocks all around us called other planets and meteors. We are spinning at a thousand miles per hour. Orbiting around the sun at 19 miles per second which is 67,000 miles an hour. And we are so fragile. <laughs> or this, this one got me too. Just thinking about rain. In California, most, a lot of places on the earth, and no one thinks about rain besides when it stops, but it's not a precious thing. California, we get this a little bit, man. If it doesn't rain, we're in trouble. How amazing rain is. Water is separated from salt. In the ocean, which is extremely hard to do, even with, with modern man technology, that's hard to do. It's gently lifted in into clouds, and these puffy white clouds come over land and gently sprinkle the water down for us. I Google search again Wikipedia. So how much rain is in a cloud? Okay, how much water is in a cloud? Scientists estimate that one inch of rain falling over an area of one square mile is equal to 17.4 million gallons of water. That much water weighs 143 million pounds. And it's gently sprinkled on us. Who are we to think we're trading favors with God? Just because we obey We're always in the position of receiving. Man is 100% dependent on God, never the other way around. And therefore, man should be thankful. Yes, one of the Romans 1 says that's man's greatest sin, or at least one of them. It's, it's kind of the start of the greatest sin, is that we're not thankful. This is what Jerry Bridges, a great author, if you... Um, See any of his books out there? Jerry Bridges says, uh, writes about Thanksgiving. He says, Thanksgiving is an omission of dependence. It, it's that God gives and we receive, right? That we're dependent on Him giving. Thanksgiving is an omission of dependence. Through it, we recognize that in the physical realm, God gave us life and breath and everything else, Acts 17. And that in the spiritual realm, it is God who made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Everything we are and have, we owe to God's abundant grace. For what do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Right? What do we have that we did not receive? Nothing. When I was in seminary, there was one doctrine that really blew my mind, right? The, there was one doctrine, just thinking about it, it really did. It, it, it got a hold of me, and it, it's the idea that God is completely self-sufficient, right? It's called the self-sufficiency of God. In other words, God doesn't need anything. 
doesn't need anything. He's sufficient within himself. Self-sufficient. And I was meditating and thinking about that. And it hit me. If God doesn't need anything, then he doesn't need me. This is what A.W. Tozer in the book, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy, wrote. To admit an existence of a need in God is to admit incompleteness in the divine being. Need is a creature word, and it cannot be spoken of the creator. God has a voluntary relationship to everything he has made, but he has no necessary relationship to anything outside of himself. His um, interest in, cre- in his creation arises from his sovereign good pleasure, not from any need the cre- uh, creation can supply, nor from any um, completeness it can bring to him. In other words, God doesn't need anything. And if that is true, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your obedience. He doesn't need your talents. He doesn't need your company. This is a big one. I hear people speak of this all the time saying, saying God was infinitely lonely and therefore he decided to make men because he wanted relationship so badly. God was in perfect relationship from eternity past in the Trinity. He needed no relationship. He doesn't need our prayers. He doesn't even need our evangelistic efforts. I mean, this, is, this one I think Christians struggle with the most that I could think about. God does not need us to evangelize. Uh, A.W. Tozer continues on the self-sufficiency of God. Let me just keep reading. Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet, if we look at the popular concept of God today, this is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. I'd say 21st century has too. So lofty is our opinions of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is no greater from our being, nor would he be lesser if we did not exist. That we do exist is altogether of God's free determination, not by divine necessity. In other words, God doesn't need us. Probably the hardest thought of all for our natural egotism, and Tozer doesn't hold anything back here, to entertain is that God does not need our help. He commonly, he's com, or we commonly characterize him as a busy, busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking the help to carry out his compassionate pl- plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. But the God that works, or the God who worketh all things together, surely needs um, no help or and no helpers. Too many missionary appeals are based upon the supposed frustration of God Almighty. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but also for God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for um, want of support. I fear that thousands of young people, peoples enter into Christian ministry from no higher motives than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into. Let me be clear. This is not the God of the scripture. The almighty, powerful, sovereign, supreme God of the Bible does not need you 
and he does not need me. All the dependence goes from man to God. Then this leads to a question, though. Why evangelize if God doesn't need us to? I get asked this all the time. As a pastor, this is probably the top five question I get right here. Why does God need us to evangelize if we are chosen, if we are elected, if we are predestined? And just so you know, before, if anyone, before you send me emails on those words, those are all biblical words. You will find those in Scripture. If God is sovereign over salvation, meaning 100% of the credit of salvation goes to God and nothing else, then why evangelize? And let me say something. It's top five question. It's a good question. It's a good question. I want to answer this question by looking at a familiar story. Turn to Acts 10 for me. Acts 10, verse 1. And answer this question. Why evangelize if God does not need us to evangelize? This is the salvation of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. It's Acts 10, verse 1 says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devoted man who feared, the, feared God and with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continuously uh, to God. Uh, this is a God fear. That's a technical term, actually, in this day and age for a Gentile man, a non-Jewish man that believed in the Old Testament and worshipped God. He didn't know Jesus and he wasn't saved. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't saved. But yet with the, the, the little truth he had... As a Gentile man, he feared God, gave genuinely, and prayed continuously. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly those two words. Think about those words and take note of those two words. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Um, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So an angel comes in a dream, a clear vision. So clear that there's a conversation, an intelligible conversation that's going on with specific instructions. And this is what the angel tells him. He says, go find Peter. Go find this man named Peter. Why? Well, we know the end of the story. If you know this story, it's so that Peter can come and share the gospel with Cornelius. Here's my question. So I was reading this and studying this a long time ago. Couldn't the angel just share the gospel with him? Yes, right? I mean, yeah, he spoke clearly to him. Did God need Peter? No. God can do anything, right? He could send angels to every single person and share the gospel with every single person on the planet if he wanted to. He could write the gospel message in the sky so that every single person could read it in their own language. 
he could drop Bibles to every single person, personal Bibles falling open to John 3.16 highlighted in their language. God himself is omnipresent. He could visit every single person instantly and share the gospel with them. Then why use Peter? I think the answer is at the end of the story. Cornelius turned, or skip over to verse 44 to give you some, we're skipping some. So Cornelius is, uh, sins for Peter. And Peter, Peter comes and, and is going to share the gospel, or shares the gospel with Cornelius. And in verse 44, this is what happened. While Peter was still saying these things, the gospel message, he's sharing the gospel. As he was sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So all Gentiles and people that, that have never even heard of God. He's sharing, sharing this message with them. And the believers from among the circumcised Gentiles who had, had come with Peter were amazed. Or I'm, I'm sorry, circumcised means Jews. Those, everyone that came with Peter, because Peter brought men with him, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exalting God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptism from these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And um, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Okay, here's the point. God didn't need Peter to share the gospel. God wanted Peter to share the gospel. And I think there's three reasons at least, right? I'm sure there's thousands of reasons, but three reasons at least. First, to build the church, if you know Acts and what's going on here. Second, to, to grow Peter like Christ. But third, and this is the important one, for Peter's joy. Peter got to be the messenger of good news. Verse 45, look at it. And the believers among the circumcised, the Jews, people that were already saved, who had came, come with Peter were amazed. Peter and his friends were amazed. You know what that means? This is awesome. Verse 48. And they remained for, remained for some days. Doing what? Here's my guess. Partying. Rejoicing. God is the great giver. He gives Peter the opportunity to evangelize. Peter was a great receiver. Peter got to be the one that brought the good news, and therefore he received the joy of bringing the good news. God gets the honor, praise, and gratitude, and thanksgiving. Peter gets the joy. Isaiah 40, or 52, 7 says this, How beautiful are, upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news. God didn't, doesn't need us to evangelize. We need to get that out of our head. We get to evangelize. Here's the amazing thing. Okay, so just contemplating on this idea of self-sufficiency of God, and, and, and it hit me, right? God doesn't need anything, therefore he doesn't need me, and I'm depressed. He doesn't need me. But then thinking about it a little bit longer, it hit me. God doesn't need me, then why all of this? God doesn't need me, he wants me. 
He wants me to be the, the, the one that's a part of his plan. He wants me to be the one that experiences the joy of his glory. He wants to share himself with me. Can you imagine if we changed our perspective on that in evangelism? Right, we get to evangelize. My, my most, some of my most joy-filled moments in life have been when I have evangelized. Years ago, I shared a gospel with a young man named Eric Walters. Most of you guys, or a lot of you guys know Eric. Um, recently, I, I got to be in his wedding. He, he accepted Christ as his Savior and Lord. And um, I got to be in his wedding and do communion in his wedding. He became one of my my closest friends. But I remember that day that I, I shared the gospel with him. It was Lifehouse, which was a long time ago, so if you don't know what that is, it was kind of like youth group. And he came because of a girl. Only reason he came. And I was like an intern working with the youth, and, and my job was, all right, I need to share the gospel with this kid. And I'm like, I know, and, and I just didn't share the gospel that often, so I'm like, I got to do this, right? This is part of my job. I need to do this. I go, pull him to the side, share the gospel with him, which I wouldn't even call the gospel. I did a horrible job. I'm pretty sure I spoke heresy <laughs> and said, you need to, to do good works, and that's how you get to heaven. <laughs> and and, and I, I, honestly, he walked away, and I'm thinking, I'm going to get fired. I'm like, what am I doing? The only thing I did right was I handed him a Bible put my phone number in it. About a week later, 10.30 at night, I get a phone call. And this is what he said. He said, I've been reading the Bible and I came across this verse. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What's that mean? I share the gospel with him. Listen, God brought salvation to Eric. Despite me. <laughs> and this doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. We shouldn't put our best efforts in understanding gospel, speaking it clearly, and, and growing in that. We, we get the privilege of doing it. And we should do it well. But it wasn't me that convicted his heart to give me a call that night. The amazing thing about all this is he lets us be a part of it. He lets us be the bearers of good news. God doesn't need us to evangelize. We get to evangelize. And we should be thankful. We should be thankful. Hudson Taylor is a historical figure, a missionary to China, was a man that gave up so much for, for, for missions and had just hard trial after hard trial after hard trial, lost everything as a missionary. In his old age, he was asked about this and the sacrifices that he made, and this was his quote, I never made a sacrifice. Missions was a privilege to him. Right? Not only that, he saw his hardest trials as gifts from God because he got to see God's grace in action through those hard times. A side note, I think our missionaries, I, I'm on the missions committee and I get to talk with our missionaries and I think they have the same attitude, right? God doesn't need us to be missionaries. We get to be missionaries. I think they all would say, I know they all would say missionary work is hard. 
It's hard. There's many sacrifices, health, wealth, family. It is hard, but it's a privilege. It's a joy. And I know this, and for fact, one of our missionaries is going through a hard time right now. And Brent read his email two weeks ago, and I can't say much because I'm being recorded, and um, you guys that were here heard the email. You can come talk to me later if you want to know more. But they're in a dangerous place. That's why I can't say much. This will be published on the Internet. It's a Muslim country, and recently the country says, you have two weeks to get out. Two weeks to get out. They have been there years and raised their family there. Their dreams, their, their, their ministry, their, their work. I mean, learning the language, culture, the, the customs, the country, starting a business in that country, building trust with people. Government comes and says, sell everything and get out. Talk about a trial. For months, for months, we as pastors, the missions committee, and people that support this family who is, is very well supported through prayer have been praying, God, allow them to stay. Allow them to stay. And this is what he wrote. The Lord is good. And he has answered our prayers. But the answer is no. And the email continues, and he quotes this. He, he says this in it. The Lord is, is in control of everything. Both difficult times and good times. In both, we need to give thanks and praise him. And, and he's not saying, in hard times, count your blessings. Right? Count all the, the things that you got that are good in those hard times. This missionary is saying, I thank you, God, for this trial. I thank you for this difficult time. Because he's trusting that he's in control of both good and bad times. He's using this trial somehow. He doesn't know how. He doesn't understand everything. But he's using this trial... God is using this trial for his glory and my good somehow. I am trusting Romans eight twenty eight when it says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And therefore, in faith, right? It's faith. It's not knowledge. It's not reason. But in faith, he's living out the hardest command in Scripture. James 1, 2. Count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Hudson Taylor said, I never made a sacrifice. He understood that the hardest trials, even the hardest trials were gifts from God. And this type of thinking just goes against our human nature and especially goes against the American culture of entitlement. We think God owes us something, that I've made the sacrifices. How could you let this happen? That we're trading favors with God. But true faith knows that God owes us nothing, and we owe him everything. There's no entitlement. True faith knows that, that we have only earned the wrath of God. Eternal punishment for the wages of sin is death. True faith trusts God in hard times. Because true faith knows that God is good. True faith knows that he is in control of everything. And true faith knows that he is infinitely wiser than us. Therefore, we can trust him. God causes all things to work together for, 
for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Therefore, in faith and in trust, right, and in only in those two things, we can live out James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We can be thankful even for our trials. And don't, I'm preaching to myself. <laughs> and, and I'm thankful that I haven't gone through some of the hard trials that I've seen in this church. And, but the Bible is clear. We are not only supposed to be thankful in our trials, but be thankful for our trials. Therefore, true, powerful, saving faith is always thankful. It always produces gratitude. Because in every situation, God is always the great giver. And we are always his people, the great receivers. The giver giver gets the honor, praise, and glory. The receiver gets the joy that comes from the feeling of gratitude. This is what John Piper says. We'll end with this. What can I give my maker? If he were hungry, he would not tell me, for the world and all that is in it is his. The birds of the air, the bugs of the field, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. Psalms fifty ten through 12. Everything that is, is God's. I cannot improve him. I cannot enrich him or add to him. I am utterly and inescapably and always the receiver. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, Acts 17. How? How then shall I live for him? How should I, shall I please him? I must be thankful to him. Psalms fifty twenty three says this, He who brings thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies God. True saving faith looks at God as the great giver, who owes us nothing, and, and us and me as the great receiver, and I owe him everything. Therefore, I am thankful. Let's be thankful this Thanksgiving. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, all that we have is, is, is from you, Lord. And I repent and ask for forgiveness for all the times, Lord, that I am ungrateful, which is daily. Lord, help me be more grateful by understanding what you have given, Lord, the value, the cost, and how undeserving I truly am, Lord. God, I also, I, I, I know I threw out a hard challenge today that's from your words, Lord, and that's being thankful for trials, God. That is the hardest commandment that I, that I can think of in your scriptures, Lord. We need your grace to do that, Lord. We need you to, to help us through these trials, Lord. God, I've seen some of the trials that, that our church body has gone through, Lord, and there's some hard things physically, families, Lord. God, I pray for grace through that, God, that we can trust in you, Lord, even in the hard times, Lord, that we're thankful in both, the good and the bad the hard and the joy-filled, Lord. God, I pray that our church, Lord, is a thankful church, and through that we are a joy-filled church, 
And that through that, there's something attractive about us that draws non-believers to our church, Lord. I pray for that, God. A spirit of thanksgiving. Help us to truly be thankful this week, Lord. In your son's name, amen.